He was once considered a crime. Born to a black mother and a white father in 1984 under apartheid South Africa, where interracial unions were forbidden, Trevor Noah has come a long way from his humble upbringing in Johannesburg. He began his career at the age of 18, starring in a soap opera. He then went on to host his own radio show and eventually quit to focus on comedy. We're always excited uh, on the show to find new, talented voices. Noah made a name for himself, attracting the attention of some of the world's most renowned comedians like Jon Stewart. Mr. Trevor Noah. Trevor, thanks for joining us. Nice to see you. Welcome, sir. Who handpicked him to be his successor as host of The Daily Show, one of America's top political satire programs. America, but as a foreigner in Trump's America, how does Noah's voice resonate? You know, it's been so chaotic here in America dealing with Trump's bullshit. And can political satire be a force for change? This week, comedian and TV host Trevor Noah talks to Al Jazeera. Trevor Noah, thanks for talking to Al Jazeera. Doing, thank you very much for Good having me. Good to see me. you here in Doha. You're participating in the comedy festival. Yes. Nice yes. to have you in Doha. I'm excited to be here. This is uh, this is fun. You know, anywhere I can go that's new for me in the world to do stand-up comedy is uh, is exciting. But since you're coming from the states, uh, that is where the conversation is going <laughs> to shift right now. So I got to ask you about Trump, obviously, and something that you've recently said. In fact, uh, you've said that a lot of things America is experiencing now, you feel like you've lived through and you think there is a cause for concern, but what you lived through is apartheid and you lived through racism and you lived through segregation. So is that what you're referring to here? What is your biggest concern when it comes to the well, States? Well, I mean, if you, if you live in a place where people use uh, economic instability or anything that's going on to blame it on, you know, they, they blame it on certain groups of people, I always feel like those are the first steps to building a society that is, uh, you know, isolated, and more importantly, one that seeks out, uh, seeks to oppress certain groups of people. And a leader like Trump is someone who has who has shown, I think, even in the little time that he's been in power, that he will he will probably use it to his advantage. When you hear about a possible Muslim registry in the U.S., what do you think? I think it's absurd. <laughs> you know, uh, to be to be in a country that is uh, aspiring to freedom, a country that for long has preached uh, liberty, uh, you know, the idea that a nation would move towards religious persecution is one that is, it's frightening and it's insane to think that we are living through that time. We like to think as people, we've seen the past and we've we've learned from what has happened, but it's it's actually frightening to see how quickly you can repeat the ills of the past when enough people are afraid and and hungry and those those are two things that if you combine them and use them in the right way you can get people to commit the most heinous crimes against each other it sounds very much like you are saying that trump is a racist is that what you truly believe you cannot deny that donald trump in his actions and the way he speaks about certain groups of people is one that is racist you know, but then when you say this person is racist, then immediately everyone goes, oh, well, then what about the KKK? Are they racist? So you're saying Trump is like the KKK? It's like, no, that's that's not what I'm trying to say. That's never what I'm trying to say. But I understand how the conversation around racist and racism has become so blurred that now we almost have to find new terms to define what biases and, and um, what, you know, uh, 
I guess, discriminations people put on other human beings based on their race or their ethnicity or their religion. And so I think Donald Trump is, is one of those people. He, he is proud to put forth a white nationalist agenda um, that is becoming more and more something that a lot of Americans are, are excited about, but more Americans are not, which is the one beacon, you know, the light that you've got to keep aiming, uh, aiming towards. Donald Trump has said that he's going to uh, uh, sort of open up the libel law so that he can sue organizations a little easier. Does that concern you? Does it make your job a little bit more difficult? Being in a space where uh, a president or any political leader can pursue you know, news organizations on a whim is a scary, scary place to be in. Because again, I come from a country where censorship was a, a normal part of our lives. And once you censor the press, once you live in a world where people don't have access to any information, that is, that is the first step in an authoritarian regime um, that you, is you that may not where be able the U.S. is heading from. under a Trump administration? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. I mean, a lot of a lot of the signs are there. You know, you see someone who is full of bluster. You see somebody who's trying to create their nation in isolation. You see someone who's trying to dismantle the media and trying to discredit the media and facts as a whole. Uh, you see somebody who is all about themselves. I mean, Donald Trump spent the first day of Black History Month speaking about himself and how well he's been doing and his contribution as opposed to what the month was supposed to be about. And so you, you see this from a man, you know? And I laugh, I always say to my friends, I go, you know, we always have these theories about what we would have done were we in other times. People always say, hey, what would you have done if you were around when Hitler was coming up? And everyone has theories. And you go, well, now we're in a time where there's somebody who is presenting the same rhetoric someone who's discrediting democracy, someone who's saying there are imaginary voters and a rigged election. Uh, and you go, where does that lead? If Donald Trump acts like this when he's won an election, how will he act when he's lost an election? Is the question I always ask myself. But how challenging then does this make your job? If uh, you feel like the US is possibly heading towards this road of censorship? Well, I think the closer you get to censorship, the more comedy thrives. That's what I've always found. You know, freedom of speech is something that people pursue regardless of the laws. As human beings, we want to speak our minds, you know, whether it's whispered in back alleys or whether it's uh, proclaimed from, from a pulpit. As human beings, we want to tell the truth about what we see. And so comedy is essentially supposed to be that. You know, Dick Gregory, a legend and an icon and, and someone I've been lucky enough to have many conversations with, is an American comedian who once said to me, he said, the truth is way funnier than, than any joke you can try to concoct. And so essentially, it doesn't become harder because we, as a comedian, I just tell more of the truth. But how does comedy and political satire actually contribute to real political change? Or does it take away from that? That's a discussion. Just you know what's funny? That's a discussion. I don't think anybody has found an answer to that. Some people would argue that satire does nothing. Some people would argue that satire does everything. I like to think of it like this. I look at it through the lens or through a prism of a, a, prism of, of a, of a South African who grew up and I was lucky enough to be born during apartheid but then grow up through a country that, 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 that moved into a democracy. And one thing I noticed was apartheid was ended by no one thing. You know, you go, was it the sanctions? 
Was it the ANC? Was it the, the militarized wing? Was it the threat of, of people taking over, you know, from the inside? Was it, you, there's no one thing. Was it artists boycotting the country and singing about South Africa? We'll never know. What we do know is all of those things contributed. And so I think it is undeniable that satire plays a role in speaking truth to power, Satire plays a role in delivering information in a manner that is palatable because oftentimes truth needs to be delivered with a spoonful of sugar. On the subject of satire as well as media as a whole, I was reading this report by the New York Times. It was saying that Trump, back to the issue of Trump, he'd received almost $1.9 billion of free attention from media of all types. So is the media guilty in any way, including your show? Are you guilty in contributing to the rise of Trump and giving him a platform to speak? I don't have a news show. The Daily Show is a show about news and politics and essentially we comment on what is happening. Now, I don't deny that that comes with a certain amount of responsibility and an opportunity, which I appreciate every single day. But this is where I critique the news and the media is it's one thing to have Donald Trump on TV when he's saying something and criticize that and call him out and fact check him and dispel myths. It's another thing to put his podium on TV for two hours before he comes out. I mean, it's an exaggeration, maybe 40 minutes, let's say, before the man walks out. His empty podium is on stage. It's another thing to put his stakes and his water on stage before he's even on TV. What are you doing? You're giving the man free promotion. When you look at the Daily Show as well as you know late night uh, TV shows, politics is really the bread and butter of these shows. So it still is a free attention and free platform. Everything is free attention and free platform. Everything is. But what is that? What is the intention of that? You know. So as a comedy show your job is to look for the truth and to find the laughter and to speak truth to power. And so, if anything, Donald Trump is always going to be a, a person that The Daily Show would be looking at as long as he is somebody involved in the realm of politics. Th there was a certain standard in, in the US. You know, certain shows said before Trump, you come here and we engage you. And then at some point they gave Trump so much leverage and so much room to be everywhere without the accountability. And I think that's a little part where maybe the media didn't take him seriously. And then by the time they realized he was a serious candidate, it was too late. And Jeff Zucker from CNN, for instance, admitted that. Being a foreigner, talking about American politics, uh, being quite involved in the American politics arena uh, nowadays, does that give you more or less leeway to uh, say what you think, in your opinion. Every day that I live in the U.S., I am living in the U.S. I'm afflicted by many of the same things that Americans are afflicted by, and at the same time, I am not. I acknowledge that, and I also acknowledge the world that I am in and I'm from. So, I pay taxes in the U.S., so as a taxpayer, I, you know, am represented to a certain extent. Obviously, I cannot vote, but as a human being, I still have the ability to, to observe. And if anything, America is a nation that has gone around the world and commented on everything else that everyone is doing. So I'm sure they would welcome it when I come in and do the same thing there. You did have your own share of controversy when you started out, uh, when it came to certain tweets that you had put out and also uh, last year over a tweet about the Supreme Court ruling against Texas restrictions on abortion. Uh, do you regret any of those now? Do I regret them? No, I think I would regret that I would regret 
had I not changed. I would regret had I not become better. There's many jokes I've told as a comedian where I look back and I go, what the hell was I thinking? What was I doing? That's comedy. You're supposed to be in a space where you're trying to challenge yourself. And sometimes when you say it, you don't say it right the first time, you know? And um, I think Twitter was in a place where as people were having conversations and you look back now and you go, what were you saying? And you're like, oh, but that was a conversation. And now people don't look at the conversation. They don't look at context. And without context, we have no idea of what any conversation was. A conversation was. in 140 characters, isn't it? Well, that's what it's become. That's what it's, I mean, that's Donald Trump today. He's having conversations on a platform where he genuinely shouldn't be. You know, any presidential, you know, any leader who is tweeting policy is, 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 is ridiculous. You know, so... So I, I like to think that maybe I've gotten to the place where in the six, seven years before, you know, I got to The Daily Show, you know, I became hopefully a slightly more progressive person and someone who learned how to refine what I was saying, especially on a new platform like Twitter. Uh, the president of the United States, however, I don't think he's, he's uh, fully refined his skills yet. Uh, when you do a lot of comedy about Trump, have you been the target of uh, sort of extremist or racist uh, tweets or messages? Yeah, but I mean, that's social media. I was, <laughs> I was the target of racist tweets. I feel like if you're on social media, you will be the target of racist tweets. I, you know, I always tell people, I go, man, I come from a country where racism meant tear gas and, and dogs, you know, and rubber bullets. So someone saying something to me online is really, really like the most timid form of racism I've come across in a long time. So that's par for the course. I understand it. Um, and I just, I live within that world. There seems to be the shift, right, towards uh, far right ideologies, more conservative ideologies, whether it's in the States, as we're seeing now uh, with Trump and the people that he's put around him, but also in Europe, uh, UK, France, or perhaps with uh, the rise of Marine Le Pen running for the presidential election in that country. We saw the Quebec attack a couple of uh, weeks ago, and uh, the attacker was saying that he had subscribed to Trump's ideology and Marine yeah. Le Pen's ideology. Why do you think uh, there's this rise at this particular time? When people are hungry, you can convince them of anything. That's, it's, it's a very simple truth. If you, you, you try and convince someone who is well-fed and wealthy to be a crazy supporter of any ideology, you'll struggle. But when somebody is hungry and afraid, you can get them to believe anything if you point at the right enemy. So if you say that person is the cause of your problems, you can, you can mobilize a, a very strong force because they feel like they have a purpose and that purpose is to get them back to the place that they were told they belong in. Noah recounts his childhood in his book, Born a Crime. He recalls how the family would sometimes visit the park, but had to hide the fact that they were together because of the strict apartheid laws. One such time, Noah runs after his father to play, but his father runs away, fearing police would find out Noah was his son. Turning to your book for a moment, Born a Crime. So. You say you're officially the product of a crime. Your mother is black, your father is white. How did that feel growing up, knowing that you were a crime? Well, I was lucky when I was young, I didn't know that. So I think that's, that's where my parents did a great job. They insulated me from, from uh, what the government would have labeled me as, and instead uh, focused on what they labeled me as, which was their child. 
So I didn't know that I was a crime. But you highlight experiences in your book. Yeah, where yeah, where but, I, but I didn't know, you know what I mean? So even telling you the experiences, even in the book, I never speak of it as a moment of pain for myself. I did not know. I couldn't live with my father, but I did not know why. I could not walk with my mother in the streets at times, but I did not know why. The story that struck me is that time you went to the park with yes. both your parents. Yeah, and then I chased my dad and he ran away, but uh, that's what dads do. You know, they run away from their kids. It's a game. So y the perception of your reality is everything. That's what I believe. What we perceive is oftentimes more important than what is real. And so for me, growing up at that time, what was real was the fact that I had two parents who loved me. And then when I was older, I came to realize how many obstacles they had to get over just for us to exist as a family. Your life, however, could have really turned out very differently considering a lot of the experiences that you went through as a child. Yes. Why do you think it didn't? Uh, I, I would say luck and then my mom would say by the grace of God. Um, you know, my, my mother was a force in my life who I think gave me a lot of the tools that I still use today to navigate the world that I live in. I am, however, always cognizant of the fact that there are many moments in my life where luck played a role in just shifting me, you know, from one track to another. And many times I look back and I go, had I taken that fork in the road or had life shifted me that way, I wouldn't be where I am today. Also, one thing in your book that stood out for me is you quote and mention Nelson Mandela several times, obviously a, a huge figure for you and a huge hero for you. And what Nelson Mandela has said is, we know too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. Now, many people highlight the similarities between South Africa under apartheid and the policies that Israel pursues now when it comes to the Palestinians. What can the Palestinians learn from the experience uh, that South Africa went through? Well, look, I think it's, it's different and some of the effects are the same. One thing I learned, and it's funny, we were having a discussion in the car on the way here was it's such a complicated issue and yet at some, you know, some, some days it seems so simple. What Nelson Mandela spoke to, I completely agree with in that the oppression of people uh, and, and the, you know, with, with regards to the settlements and the expansion and really what the US said, uh, you know, with Kerry and at the United Nations is that the way Israel is pursuing what they're pursuing right now is not sustainable and it is not something that it, it's not an action that promotes the idea of seeking out a peaceful uh, or peace agreement in any way shape or form it's difficult to say what the Palestinian people can learn from South Africans because the situation is not exactly the same what I do know is any group of people who are oppressed can learn one thing from South Africa and that is what um, Katrada said in South Africa, one of the, the stalwarts of the, the struggle. And he said, he said, we fought because we knew we were right and we fought because we knew we would win. And that's really all the struggle leaders did in South Africa. Do you think that Israel is pursuing an apartheid policy considering you, are, you know what that feels like? It seems very similar, but I don't know enough about the system to confirm that. And I think one of the worst things I would ever do as a person is to come in in an uninformed way. 
you know so it's the same way when someone looks to South Africa and has an opinion that is based on little loose facts that they've learned I get angry at them and I say well why not why not ask a South African for this opinion it's the same way I'm very careful to not impose myself in any situation and say oh I know about this you know it's the same way when I started on the Daily Show with the US I took the time to read you know when I first started on the show people say what's your view on this which I said I, I just got here let me learn let me read let me interview people let me study the culture and the world that I'm in let me study the politics because misinformation oftentimes is is part of the problem so you know you cannot deny the similarities between what is happening in Palestine and what happened in South Africa you cannot deny the system of oppression that is applied you know it, it is very similar to an apartheid state these are things that nobody denies you know or very few people around the world um, deny but when you go home and you look at the state of South Africa today accusations of corruption against the government high unemployment uh, still a very high poverty rate what must you think when you go there and do you think that the ANC still represents the people I think when you read about stories of corruption in South Africa that's great I don't think corruption is good but the fact that you read about it is fantastic did anybody read any stories about corruption during apartheid no because there was censorship of the press the fact that you can even read about it now means that there is growth the fact that you know that this is happening the fact that politicians are being caught held accountable sent to prison that for me is a thriving democracy that is something we've never had in terms of high unemployment the notion that any country would come out of being a nation where less than 10% of the population had and still has up to 90% of the wealth of course there's going to be unemployment you know I always say to people I go well, of course there's unemployment now and unemployment's gone up is because it wasn't called unemployment before because it was basically slavery you know so I look at a nation that is growing I look at a nation that is fledgling I look at a democracy that is that is finding its feet with regards to the ANC what is happening to them now is they're realizing that they have to evolve from being a liberation movement to a leading party and when you are leading your 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 goals and your ideals have to be very different to when you are liberating a nation and a lot of ANC leaders and understandably so felt that they needed to be rewarded for what they had done but the truth is the people need a reward you know the people need an incentive and the people need opportunities to grow and so the ANC I think is still what many would consider the party of the people um, but I think if they ever forget that they're the party of the people and the people being the key word there then very quickly the people will choose another party because that's what they have the ability to do now what is your goal with the daily show I think my ultimate goal with The Daily Show is to create a show where I'm answering the questions that I myself have, the people at the show have, and then my audience has. And that is questions that we should be finding the answers to, as opposed to the answers that are already presented to us by mainstream media and the news as it exists. And so I don't believe we ask enough questions. I don't believe we seek out enough answers. Oftentimes 
the first piece of information we get we claim as you know the bastion of all knowledge that we have and i think as a show i would like us to move into a space where we're constantly challenging that challenging not just opposing views but also our own to see how we can progress um i guess to a more honest and and uh, and understanding place and just finally let me ask you what you would like your legacy to be i i'm always wary of that question because i often feel like your legacy may not be one that you have full control over i have a very simple hope and that is i hope to leave each situation and each person that i've met in a slightly better place than when i met them and that is the only way that i would hope people would remember my show my stand up and myself trevor nora thank you for talking to al jazeera